Well, I want to do something this morning uh, as we continue each week looking at a psalm. I want to look at what is probably the most familiar psalm that we've looked at so far. And in many ways, it's probably the most familiar psalm in all of the Bible, if not one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible. And of course, that's Psalm 23. Um, one of the things I'm always surprised by is how many people have Psalm 23 memorized. Even people I know personally that wouldn't claim to be practicing faith as a believer or really practicing much anything else of the Bible. Um, Psalm 23 has really sort of endeared itself into the way we think about life. It becomes the word so often we hear and associate with funerals, and it's become a part of sort of literature around the world. It's, it's not uncommon for Psalm 23 to be included in volumes, maybe in some sort of a college class on poetry. Psalm 23 listed alongside all of the other great poets that may not be religious in nature at all. Um, Psalm 23 in some ways is at risk because of how familiar the psalm is for so many of us. In a way, Psalm 23, because of how long we've had it memorized, can pick up a kind of sentimental quality to it where we stop actually hearing the words and the message that the psalm teaches. And so what I hope to do today is sort of turn our attention and work line by line through Psalm 23 again and pick up some of these details of the psalms that over the years we may have simply missed because of its familiarity. Um, I did, uh, as we've been doing, ask someone to read the passage for us. And since last week, I caught a little bit of criticism for only including Will in my sermon video and not others of the family. Um, I asked Ashley. Charlotte was not willing to memorize Psalm 23. I don't know why. But I asked Ashley if uh, she would read Psalm 23 for us today. Good morning. Let's read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So as I mentioned, what I want to do today is I want to work line by line through Psalm 23 and attempt to rescue some of these images and phrases from the familiarity that most of us have with them. So of course, the famous opening line of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, that image of a shepherd leader, a shepherd king, is one that's actually pretty common throughout the Bible and Israel's history. Um, Israel was a nomadic people, and in fact, if you go to Israel today, it's still not uncommon to see out in sort of the desert barren places a nomadic tent with a shepherd who's surrounded by sheep, the flock that he leads. Um, some of that that existed then in, in ancient times, Israel has still been passed down in practice today, and it's this image that inspired poets like the one writing Psalm 23 to imagine that God was somehow like that shepherd who was leading Israel, who was some something like that, that, that herd of sheep being led by this shepherd. Um, there are lots of places you could turn to pick up that image, but Psalm 23 is really, in my opinion, the best and the fullest experience of what it means for God to be our shepherd. It's not just a positional fact. He leads us. But what Psalm 23 captures is it captures the experience of being led by this shepherd. Um, it doesn't just capture the image, sheep sort of walking in a line behind the shepherd that's leading, but it captures what it means to follow. And really it's picked up in that first verse, I shall not want. 
Um, you look at that image and the image that the psalm is painting for us of the sheep out in the pasture, out in this field with their shepherd, their heads down, chomping on fresh grass. What do they know about the threats around them or the day that they find themselves in the midst of? Their concern is only on that grass that's before them. All of their confidence and trust, any sense of fear has been caught up by that shepherd that protects them and leads them. Their safety as sheep is not in their size. They're not large animals, and it's definitely not in any sort of physical defense mechanism that the sheep has. They really have none. Their defense is the one who watches over them, who leads them, who guides them. And because of their confidence in that shepherd, they can say, I have no want. Everything is taken care of. Um, And then the second verse, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Um, As sheep, we follow this shepherd and we suddenly find ourselves in what the psalmist is describing as this grassy meadow beside this bubbling stream. Uh, the images sort of feel like the spring that's breaking in around us right now. If you were outside this weekend enjoying the beautiful weather, maybe sitting in the grass, this is the image that the psalmist is drawing on. The flowing of the stream, the still waters, the grass that's fresh in this meadow. Uh, the point of a psalm The poetic image is to immerse yourself in it. The warmth, the smells of the grass and the fresh water, the sounds, the lack of worries, the lack of concerns, the image captures, the feeling of that safety and protection of this shepherd watching over this pastoral scene. To follow God is to follow him into places like this, the grassy meadow, the bubbling brook. Verse 3 captures the value of this experience. Sitting within this grassy field, beside this still waters, he restores my soul and leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, that idea of having your soul renewed or refreshed, he he, uh, leads me into this place so that he can restore my soul. Uh, The word soul is a little misleading. There's not a good translation for this word in Hebrew because the Hebrews didn't have a word for body and soul like we do. Instead, the word here is the Hebrew word, a pretty famous one called nefesh. And the word means something like breath, but it's more than just your breathing. It's more of the the life that's within you. Um, You might remember that scene in Genesis where God breathes life into the human being. It captures a little bit of this idea of nefesh. So when the psalmist says that you restore my soul, when you restore my nefesh, he's really drawing another image like poems often do that he's calling you into. And the image is something like taking a deep breath. The person who's been following and working and found himself in the ruggedness of this experience of life now sits down in this green meadow and what does he do? He finds his shortness, his quickness of breath suddenly restored. He draws in the air of this experience and finds his lungs filled, breath restored within him, and that being the symbol for life itself, drinking in the moment. Um, It's not uncommon if we find ourselves in a great moment, whether it's on a vacation and some sort of beautiful scenery or watching the kids play when the weather outside is just right, to find ourselves sort of drawing in a deep breath as a way of savoring and enjoying and holding on to that moment. And I think that's what the psalm is capturing here. In the goodness of this green grass and still water, you restore my breath, my life inside of me, my energy. Life is good. 
Um, the second half of the verse then moves on to this sense of leading down paths of righteousness. Righteous paths, really another way to translate it is just good roads or good paths. In other words, how having this experience of God's goodness and faithfulness and the safety and the security, how could you not look around at the experience that brought you to this place and say, isn't God leading me into good things? Am I not on the right path if that path is leading me to experiences, life-fulfilling moments like this one in his safety and his security? There's a sense of all of life being good, and that's what this is capturing. The refreshing of breath, the goodness of the road that I'm on. You suddenly realize that this psalm is attempting to capture how good the place is that God has led us into. And that's what makes the next verse all the more surprising. Um, Really one of the famous phrases from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Um, What's remarkable about the psalm that I think you miss because of the familiarity with it is it's actually taking these two images and overlaying them into this same scene. The same scene that we've been describing of this grassy place with the still waters and the deep drawn breath is also the place. I mean, you notice how he says it, even though the place I'm in, even though it is also the place where I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, What struck me is that the psalmist doesn't attempt to move on to a a new image or a new analogy. He's not now saying, I've closed up that image of the shepherd analogy, and now I'm moving on to this analogy of darkness and death, which is one common elsewhere in the psalm. Because immediately he comes back to these pastoral images. I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's still speaking and imagining this scene of us being sheep, looking to our shepherd for confidence, But he's now done a really remarkable thing by saying, who would have thought that the place of green grass and still waters, the refreshing of my soul, happened to also be the same place where I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, I like the way Robert Alter puts that line in his translation. He says, I walk in the valley of death's shadow. That the valley is both the valley of God's goodness, of green grass, and bubbling water, and it is also the place where death's shadow is cast over. Um, One way to sort of hold on to the, the way these two images fit together is it's as if these sheep who have been chewing on this grass and enjoying the goodness of the moment suddenly recognize that the cool shade they find themselves in, the enjoyment of that place, is actually the shadow cast by the experience of death. That even as we live in the reality of death, and even as we walk through a place of struggle and pain and the realization of that death, that it's actually in this valley that we find this image of comfort and security and refreshing that the psalm captures so well. What this psalm does is it it forces us to overlay two experiences that we might assume are different experiences in life and holds open the possibility that those two things can happen simultaneously. That you can find yourself in the shadow of death and at the exact same time find yourself drawing in deep breaths of how good God is, surrounded by these images of his protection and his leading. And you can come to the conclusion that the path he has you on is a good and a righteous path, even though it leads through the shadows of this valley. Um, David hasn't abandoned the shepherd metaphor. He's continuing to pile these images on together. What the psalm does is it forces us to consider that we have all the time we've been enjoying God's goodness also been lying in the place that is cast over by this shadow of death itself. 
And then David does move on to his second big analogy, drawing these two overlapping images together. He does the exact same thing again. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me, but this table is in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Um, It's the same sort of thing he did, only abbreviated here. Before he drew out these two images, here the two images come in one verse. There's a banquet, a feast spread out. But that banquet is now in the presence of enemies. Um, It got me thinking this week, if there's anything I'm missing in our stay-at-home orders, it has been going out to restaurants to have food, and it's been going out to restaurants with friends, which is such a part of Ashley and I's life and part of what we enjoy. And we found ourselves here five or six weeks without having eaten out and not eaten out with anyone, having anyone over for dinner. Um, And I find myself really missing it. The psalm is, is capturing something universal when it imagines this scene of a great meal, a whole table prepared and set before us. But instead of being surrounded by friends, the psalm captures the scene as being surrounded by enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Again, what the psalm does is it overlaps these two images. The goodness of this meal spread out before him, but the reality that at the exact same time, his enemies have encircled him and are in his very presence. Then the second image His head is anointed with oil. Now, we sort of usually imagine that word anointing to be something that's uh, a moment of worship, some sort of sacrificial rite or or action of worship or religious practice. But really what the psalm's describing here is not something sacrificial, but more a kind of luxury. In the ancient world, it was pretty common for people to soak their hair in olive oil and to do that um, oftentimes at great expense. It was not something that was done casually. It was considered sort of a luxury, sometimes used in special occasions, weddings, or other opportunities. And so here the images of not just this banquet feast, but of sort of the luxury of being able to soak his hair in this olive oil, a strange analogy for us, but maybe we would compare it to something like at the end of several days hiking, a long journey or trip to find yourself at home with a hot shower uh, is some sort of a, a luxury of enjoyment. That's what's being described in this image of head anointed with oil. And then the other, the other image from it, my cup is overflowing. It reminds us of Jesus' first miracle when the wine had dried up and he turned the water into what ended up being an endless supply of wine by that miracle. Here too, the same thing. This cup is constantly overflowing. There's more than even my cup could hold. Um, All of these images are really about the experience of that goodness, the, the, the greatness of that good, the luxury of that goodness, that it's not just that God protects me when my enemies are encircled around me, but the experience itself is a luxurious experience of feasts and, and preparations and overflowing cups and the luxury of, of his hair being soaked in this oil. Um, We don't really know exactly when Psalm 23 was written or the situation that it was written in. Historically, it has been credited to be one of David's psalms, but we don't know where in David's life he was pinning this. Um, It's not hard from the images, I think, to imagine these pastoral scenes of a shepherd with his sheep being drawn out of David's own days, watching sheep as a young man, practicing and seeing these very scenes as he himself was a shepherd. And it's also not hard to imagine sort of the luxurious images of this banquet and endless amounts of wine, as David would have probably participated in banquets under Saul's administration when he served in that palace and surely had banquets like this in his own day. But if you really pressed me, I tend to think Psalm 23 comes out of the time when David was living in the wilderness on the run from Saul. 
very really, David knew what it was to live and to be in that place where his enemies were encircled around him. Oftentimes, he found himself circled and cut off by Saul with no real option for safety or security. And, and David, of all people, knew what it was to lie down beside a spring of water in the shadow of caves and ravines where he depended on that secrecy, that hideout for his safety and security from those who were trying to track and hunt him down. And so for me, it seems so likely that this psalm is coming out of those days in which David was in the wilderness. And the reality that as difficult as the situation was that he found himself in, it's actually in that wilderness that David has some of his most meaningful moments. It's there that he experiences God's presence in ways he often doesn't elsewhere. It's there that he hears the Lord speak and guide him in ways that he hasn't. It's in the wilderness that David actually meets and makes some of his deepest friendships and acquaintances from Abigail to Abiathar, the priest. Um, and it's in the wilderness that you get a sense of, in my opinion, David at his best. When David comes to power, the corruption of that power is constantly pressing in against him, and the expectations to look and act like a certain kind of king are constantly something he struggles with. You see David disengaging from his faith as he ages. But in the wilderness, because of the risk and the danger, that faith is engaged in ways there that really David struggles to do elsewhere. David is in so many ways at his very best when he's on the run. And I think David realizes it in Psalm 23, that these days, as difficult as they are, the shadow of death, the encircling enemies, are also the places where he realizes how good this shepherd is who guides us, how good this path is that he has us on, how much life can be breathed in when we open our eyes and recognize it. That this experience of scraping out a living in the wilderness in so many ways really is a banquet laid out before us. Our hair soaked in oil, the cup overflowing with wine. Um, what I want to do with Psalm 23, besides help you see some of those images, is, is really just offer you one thing that I think Psalm 23 does so well. And I hope we can hold on to and not miss because of its familiarity. The one thought is this. When you're able to recognize that God himself is your shepherd and leading you into this fullness of life, regardless of the circumstances around you, then you get the opportunity to enjoy these things like Psalm 23 opens our eyes to do. The shadow of death can actually become the refreshing meadow where you lie down beside still waters and trust his rod and staff protecting you in that place. And the circling villains, as you sit down at the table, can actually become the setting, the place by which that great feast is begun with all of its luxuries. What Psalm 23 does is it asks you to do this, by its language, I think, in a powerful way. To close your eyes, to draw in that deep breath, the breath of life, to pause for a moment, and to open your eyes again into a greater world in which God is doing good things in the midst of brokenness. I don't know a better time than the one we're in to practice this, to recognize that the shadow of death is real, that the enemies that surround us are constant, encircling us and changing what it means to live. But the reality is, even in places like this, we are on a good path with a shepherd who leads us. And by faith, those who are willing to can draw in this life and open their eyes to a world of faith and goodness and joy in the midst of that shadow and in the midst of this danger. Psalm 23 is so well regarded 
not just because it's famous, but because it's a great psalm, a powerful psalm with rich images about what it means to truly trust the shepherd who leads us. Hope you might do that with me. Let's close our eyes and pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we do as Psalm 23 leads us to do. We pause this morning in the midst of our own shadows and our own enemies, and we draw in this breath, allowing you to refresh us with life, with a new perspective. That though this is a place of danger, and though it is a place where, God, everything is challenged from our health to our finances to our own mental sanity as we're locked up in homes alone, the God in the midst of it, you are a God who can turn this place into a place of blessing, a feast laid out before us, a cup overflowing, cool grass next to calm waters that we might lay down in and not worry or fear because we know that the power and authority of your presence, our shepherd, watches over us. God, we know how hard it is to hold on to that image, to hold on to that truth. And so we're grateful for opportunities like this that you give us in the Psalms to remind ourselves that the power we have in you, the protection we have in you, the hope we have in you is greater than any risk or danger we face in this world. And the God, how good it is that if you could turn this place a place of death shadow into a place of joy and refreshing, God, then how much awaits us on the other side of death? How good is that place in which death casts no shadow, in which enemies no longer exist? And that, God, you are leading us there. That it is this path, with all of its challenges, that takes us to that eternal place. And, God, we know it is most true because we have seen it in front of us that you could take the death of Christ, that greatest moment of darkness, and you could turn it into the bursting light of resurrection. And that, God, we are participants in that. And so we live like we mean it. We live like we have received Easter. We live in the reality of that resurrection and that hope, enjoying and seeing and relaxing into all the goodness that you have earned us as you went before us. And even as we suffer, And even as we find ourselves fearful in these times, God, by your spirit, give us a sense of every good thing that you are doing around us. We trust you. We enjoy you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.